Hello and welcome to the DMs Book Club, a podcast where we read about some Dungeons and Dragons and discuss how we might include it in our role-playing campaigns. Welcome back to another guest episode for this season. Uh, joining me first time actually on the podcast and first time we've spoken to in probably like two or three years. Like we've we've discorded, yeah. which is a word. Yeah, we've done a lot of texting over Discord, but this is our first time talking in person. Yeah. In person, quite well, In person through, through Zoom, yes. It's <laughs> about as in person as I've talked to anyone in the UK since the whole thing started. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, the event. I don't remember the event. <laughs> Joining me today is Ben Dawes. Ben, how are you, my friend? What have you been up to? I am good. I have been planning a trip back to the UK, which has been quite stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking forward to it because it looks like borders are finally opening up. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed, touch all the wood that you can. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, but I've been good and I've been playing D&D quite regularly of late, actually. And mm. I've found myself in a miraculous position where I alternate every week with people locally. Ooh. One week I'm DMing and one week I'm playing in two different campaigns. It's amazing. Wow. So yeah, I guess that's my first question to you then. It's like, how did you get into doing role play stuff? And are you a regular DM or a player or a mix between the two? Yeah, the first time I played D&D was 3.5 edition. <laughs> uh, I think I think actually 5th edition had come out, but I was I was in the States on an internship. Mm. And my now partner was getting me into watching role-playing games. I think we started with Titan's Grave, Mm. which was on Geek and Sundry. And then that led into watching Critical Role back when there were only like 15 episodes out. And I was like, wow, this is so cool, so fun. i got to find someone to to play with. So I asked around within the Quidditch group Mm -hmm. that I was playing with in the States. And someone there was like, yeah, I... uh, I've played D&D for years. Uh, I'll, I'll make a little group together. So he made a character wow. for me. It was a half-elf beguiler, which was oh. a thing you could be in 3.5 okay. edition. <laughs> yeah, 3.5 had like 100 different stats for your character down yeah. to like use rope, I think, was like a skill that you could put stats in. <laughs> so there you get these really customized classes. Uh, but I was super into it, super fun. So when I came back, I uh, spoke to everyone at my union. I was like, anyone want to play d and I'll DM. It's, it's going to be great. It's going to be great fun, which got a lot of responses. So then I started DMing and it was with eight players, I think, plus ben. occasional guests. No, no, that sounds <laughs> dreadful. Like, this guy Matt Mercer could do it. <laughs> Why can't? It's going to be easy, right? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't easy and no. it wasn't, I wasn't a great DM. Um, no, not true. I, as, as, as somebody, as you DM'd for me a couple of times, you were an amazing DM. But again, we were in a group of four those times. Mm. I do have a rule of like no more than five, just because then people get spotlights stuff, but like eight already, I could just feel myself going, no, I would leave if I was that eight person. So, oh, sorry, I've come into the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> it, it went surprisingly well. I think it they're all lovely people. So mm. it, it managed to keep a pretty good balance. No one mm. was, you know, kicked to the sidelines or whatever. Mm. But I wouldn't do it again. Um, unless under very special circumstances. <laughs> Reunion. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then I've been DMing, mainly DMing in terms mm. of uh, interaction with D&D ever since I did done. I've started a lot of homebrew campaigns. Yeah. And now I'm finally living somewhere where I feel like I'm going to be living for many years as mm-hmm. opposed to one to two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've really been focusing on building a kind of consistent campaign world in terms of homebrew, which does still connect with everything I've I've run over the last, this is for perspective, I think I started DMing 
six years ago. Mm. And I've been running this homebrew world for the last like four or five. Wow. Um, yeah. Kind of just building on top, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I'll set the next campaign over here kind of thing. And mm-hmm. every time a campaign dies a sad death because I move country, anything that was left over for that campaign can, of course, be reworked into the new ones. So. Mm. You do like weekly sessions and so some weeks you are so some weeks you are the DM and sometimes you're the player. So in those player ones, is that I'm guessing it's not your world still. It's it's like is it written modules or the people's homebrew stuff? Uh that one it's also homebrew, not mine. Someone else who homebrews, very different setting to mine. She, I, I asked permission, so I can talk about it. Good. Um that they everyone in that play group and in my play group asked me to please refer to them as Dr. Big Dick. So um, I don't know if we can need to bleep that. But, no, we're um... not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I don't have money to get a bleeper. That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the DM, who goes by that name, apparently, that setting is totally homebrew. It's um, it's a world where everyone who has ever t- tried to time travel or use time travel magic in some way mm-hmm. or been in- caught up in someone else's spell it looks from everyone else's perspective like it probably worked, but you actually get kind of dumped in this demiplane. So it's, you know, a few thousand people trying to survive on whatever has been dumped here by time travel spells. So there might be like a big temple that's just crashed into the hillside. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's very unique. Uh, mm. So we're kind of <laughs> bumbling our way through that. <laughs> Whereas my my setting is more traditional, like Faerun-esque, Mm-hmm. Um, classic in quotation marks, Lord of the Ringsy fantasy, but mm-hmm. with, with uh, I've moved on more towards the kind of silly end of the spectrum, I suppose, where it's a little more inspired by Pratchett kind of thing, where yeah. things can just be silly because it never works according to plan, especially when you're homebrewing. So just allowing everything to be a little sillier mm-hmm. and people to just change their minds a little more if it if it needs it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, works a lot better. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. I love that. Going from that and obviously your homebrew stuff, what are we talking about today, Ben? What is our topic that you brought to us? Well, today, Fiona, yeah. I wanted to talk about encounter building. Mm. Uh, specifically, I have asked you to read, and you have very kindly obliged, uh, the section on encounter building in Xanathar's Guide. Yes. Um, which is, is fairly short, but uh turns out encounter building is i don't know somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of the time uh i'm running a campaign you're you're in an encounter yeah so i feel like two pages is is actually relatively short for (laughs) for that and i wonder like certainly for me the worst part of dming for me is forever combat and Mm. building encounters and stuff so looking at uh, so obviously I looked at Xanathar's, but also uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide because there's two uh, different ways of building encounters, which I'm sure we'll briefly sort of go over. For me, it's just like the worst part because you're sitting down and then it seems like a lot of maths or a lot of working things out, which I know in my head sometimes doesn't happen or worst case scenario, it does happen and you have to come up with this stuff on the spot. For me, I'm just like, I don't know what I would do this. So I think I found it really interesting reading that you said, I feel like it's such an important DM skill. It doesn't have to be one that you've perfected at all. I think it's something that you can definitely practice over and over again and still get it wrong. I think it's something that I hadn't realized that I don't necessarily have in us as sort of a tool in my tool belt, if you see what I mean. So yeah, I'm very curious to see what people make of this. Yeah, balance is is very difficult. And I think this section in Xanathar's is 
it go, it tries to go a lot more into fine detail about adding together challenge ratings and comparing them to character levels mm-hmm. to try and give a more structured way for you to kind of quote unquote come up with a set of enemies that matches your your party mm-hmm. which was a surprise to me and quite interesting to read because I don't know if you noticed in the solo monster challenge rating table, mm-hmm. it's not just a linear increase, which I think it might have been in the original DMG. Mm-hmm. It's not just that if your character level is five, you go two down to find mm-hmm. the corresponding single monster that, that matches your level. Instead, there's like a big jump from fourth level to fifth, where the challenge rating of a corresponding monster jumps by three levels yeah. instead of just by one. Mm-hmm. And there's some other places where it doesn't jump and it, it, it I don't, it, it almost looks random, but I assume mm-hmm. they've put a lot of thought into no fifth level monsters would never have this particular ability because there's no third level spell that can beat that. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you get a fourth level spell slot, well, then you're able to tackle that. So we can jump all the way up to eight, that kind of thing. Again, it's about a couple of weeks down the line, but we've recently had the D&D celebration over the weekend, uh, previous weekend or so ago, where they're celebrating uh, Wild Beyond the Witch, like that's just come out. And there was a, a future of D&D panel where they sort of announced that they're going to give uh, out to revised edition coming out in 2024 in time for the 50th anniversary of D&D. And they've been talking about re-releasing all the sort of the monsters um rebalance them because they were talking about sometimes a dm might pick certain a certain action or something like that and what it will deal out will actually be quite less than the 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 challenge rating it has and also ultimately changing the spellcaster traits that they're planning to have so dms eventually might not have to worry about counting spell slots for their monsters and stuff like that very interesting i don't know how it will work um so i think it's interesting to see how it's done currently and then obviously in three years time as of recording this we will see how that how that pans out i do think that is the hardest thing for me still running encounters is spell slots i yeah because if you have if you have just two casters on the enemy side you have to balance so many numbers and check boxes to work out could they cast this spell? And then to decide what are they going to do on their turn? And they've got six spells to choose from, three levels of slots, one of which is maybe half crossed off. It just becomes way too complicated. So I would appreciate a simplification of that. <laughs> that sounds quite nice. Yeah, yeah. again, it'll be interesting to see how they how they do that. But for now, let us just look at Xanathar's. And I think, yeah, just to sort of go back to, so in the DM's uh, guide, it talks, it looks at it more from a XP rating sort of thing and working out through sort of a more, not even mathematical formula, but working it out sort of, a, there's definitely a lot more uh, manual work working out from there and with Xanathar's I would assume and Ben please correct me if you think otherwise or if I'm completely wrong there's two ways to level up a character in D&D is obviously through experience or through story milestones and story milestones could be whenever they complete a major event or a chapter or something like that certainly stuff like Curse of Strahd has it where you know you you defeat one evil boss you gain a level or something, or depending on where you go in the story, because that's more of a sandbox thing. So in the Xanathar's one, it's already sort of all worked out for you in terms of challenge rating, so you don't have to do anything with XP. Yeah, it's all based on challenge rating, although in general, I mean, personally, my opinion is that Milestone is, in almost all cases, objectively better. Oh, I thought so. <laughs> I, uh, I do use XP and I tell the players at the end of a session if they thought something like you get this much XP. Mm-hmm. But 
that usually isn't just a direct function of the XP of the challenge rating, because I like to reward XP for if they were clever in the fight or they didn't tackle it through killing it and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then usually I find that after three, four sessions, maybe let's say after four sessions, there may be like a quarter of the way to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here like, I'm not, if we're playing bi-weekly or every other week rather, I'm not going to wait another 12 sessions. That's half a year before (laughs) they get to level four. Like, um, so what I tend to do is kind of, it's nice to have a a bar that fills up and to feel the sense of progress. But then after I feel like they've explored their abilities at a given level Mm. and done a couple fights and they're kind of feeling more comfortable in their shoes with the skills they've gotten, Mm-hmm. Well, then it's a milestone and you get an amount of XP equal to the difference, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Absolutely. Again, maybe we'll talk about this at some point as well, but I feel that most of the most of the games I've run, the players are always at the same level just because, again, with XP, sometimes you can get players that are, oh, they're at the level above and then your know, new person joins. OK, they're the level below. And definitely in the, um, the DMs guide, it uses an example of like, three level three characters and one level two character to, to show how you would do that. But in my head, I was like, that kind of sucks for that level two person. If they've Absolutely. come in, like, you know, so I, I feel for me as a, as a DM, I always been like everyone levels up together. Or if a new person comes in, they start at the same level. I'm not going to penalize them because they weren't there right at the beginning of the story or they don't, yeah. or they missed a couple of sessions. And then in a session, everyone else levels up, you know, it's a bit unfair, I think. I think um, Wizards of the Coast have to concern themselves a lot with, in-store play where you kind of bring a character and yeah proper adventure league stuff isn't it exactly so i do understand why it has to be in there but to anyone who's going to be dming regularly or dming a one shot i absolutely agree that you should all be the same level i think xanathar's even points out why that's more important because of the big jump Mm -hmm. where a fifth level character can fight a challenge like four fifth level characters can fight something of challenge rating seven but for fourth level characters can find something challenge rating four. So you get so much more powerful. And we've all probably, if you've ever done that level up, everything in the core book gets so many cool things at level five. It's when you get access to new tiers of spells and abilities and Mm -hmm. class features that if one of you is level five and the rest are level four, it's like you're walking around with a boss on yeah. your team you know. <laughs> it's like quick call for gary gary's at the back of the group comes in what gary <laughs> so okay so so let's start then with the encounter building so what are the steps what are sort of the outline we do from xanathar's that we can make an encounter with yeah the first step they list is to assess the characters <laughs> which i i do think is interesting one running theme apart from when it comes to determining the challenge rating mm-hmm. other than that xanathar's is quite subjective and kind of yeah wishy-washy which is good it makes it even weirder that they've gone with this challenge rating number thing and later on in the in this section there's pages and pages of tables for you to compare there's this whole thing with ratios that i just oh kind of uh, yeah i had to reread that a few times the ratio stuff so i was like oh i'm sorry what? Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll tackle that but yes. step one assess the characters just kind of tells you to take a look at your player characters what are they strong at what's their hit point maximums mm-hmm. but it doesn't give you a big formula to plug them all into and out plops a difficulty or a no. table god forbid instead it just says this is a good way to kind of feel out what kind of monsters are appropriate which great i think that's i think that's true i don't think it's necessarily instructive 
It tells no. you what you should be doing, but not how to do it. I think, yeah, especially if you're starting out as a DM, here's a spoiler alert for any new DMs. You don't have to read everything to run a game. <laughs> so like, I still don't know really what clerics or druids do really. And I hope I will learn that before it happens in my campaign. But I know, for example, barbarians, just through playing one quite regularly, they hit quite hard and they have lots of hit points and stuff like that. And having that, I'm like, okay, well, that can properly skew something else. But a new DM probably might not know that per se. And all that uh, bards can do other things, uh, you know, jack of all trades and all that sort of thing. So I did quite like the title of assess the characters, you know, what are their <laughs> needs? What are they, how are they feeling? <laughs> yeah. I think one thing that the, when Wizards of the Coast are writing these things, they do have to wrangle with the fact that they're targeting these books pretty much always at not just you're DMing a regular campaign and you've had 10 weeks to learn all the ins and outs of the characters, Mm -hmm. but also you want to write a one shot so you can at least say everyone's fifth level. Mm -hmm. And then you've also got to accommodate for the Adventures League where you're going to have three level fives and two level fours coming in and you've got to build something rapidly for them. So Mm -hmm. I read this in the mentality of mostly running a regular campaign everyone's the same level mm-hmm. and you get to know it in advance because that's what i build for mostly yeah and secondarily building one shots because i have done that a fair bit recently as well mm-hmm. there you can assess the characters a lot better and and certainly when when you're regularly i know you do a lot of one shots but mm-hmm. when you're regularly dming a campaign you really do begin to understand like what abilities are they weak to mm-hmm. how how would an enemy see that in the encounter and exploit it or like mm. what weaknesses do they see in, in these people? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, I think that's a reasonable first step. Hmm. It is, it's strange that it says you, yeah, you'll make, you'll make use of these later, but just, just take a good, take, <laughs> write take them stop. down. <laughs> yeah. And then step two is to choose an encounter size, which just says determine whether you want to create a battle that pits one creature against the characters, or if you want to use multiple monsters. It then goes on to say, if the fight is against a single opponent, your best candidate for that foe is one of the game's legendary creatures, <laughs> which is all well and good if you're level, I don't know, when do they start being legendary? Seven? Oh, uh, oh I, uh, uh, no. Ugh, Putting you on the spot. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess as soon as you get out of the sort of tutorial mode and then, yeah, going towards the double figures, I say 10 and above, people are like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, they saved the village, you know, I, I would say then, yeah. Yeah, but th- that doesn't really help if you want to sink, like, uh, I... Still haven't DM'd a regular campaign above mm. level. I think the highest has been seven, mm. which you know I should put myself out there more. But I like the idea of getting characters through the journey all the way up from you know three to twenty kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be able to pitch your players against single enemies before they reach legendary status, so to have to pull from a legendary creature is a little annoying. I must mm. say, and I have started now uh, basically to homebrew mm. monsters, which which we'll talk about later for single encounters mm-hmm. that mimic a lot of what legendary creatures do without necessarily being as powerful as yeah. deserved uh, as to be deserving of the legendary title. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think calling it, for example, legendary actions. I don't think there's a reason why you can't have a boss at level two who can do things off their turn Hmm. that isn't necessarily legendary. They're just a powerful boss. And it's in the interest of mechanical balance and enjoyment of the game. They should, you should be able to give them off actions basically. 
Yeah, that's really interesting, I think. Like, yeah, because obviously when you're at lower levels, like levels three and four and stuff like that, you'll you'll get to the big bandit boss or, or whatever. Like again, in the grand scheme of things, when you look back at it, it is like, oh, that was the the first milestone for you guys. And yeah, it that would be cool, is it? Oh, you finish your turn. Okay, for the bandits off action, they do this. And and they're like, what? Oh God, you know, because then I think you're right, there's this almost sort of reverence given to legendary monsters and legendary creatures that can save against stuff or can do an action out of sequence. And that is such a, it's a cool thing to tell your players like, oh, so you've done that? Okay, it's going to take this after that. And people are like, oh, shoot, it can attack more. So when it's at lower levels as well, I think that'll be a really interesting experience to try. But yeah, I think, yeah, tweaking it so that it's not overpowered, but at the same time, give that sense of like, immersion because it feels more like a real fight rather than their turn my turn other person's turn their turn my turn other person's turn yeah so often i've run you know book one shots or early on when i was first learning to dm i'd run you know lost minds of Fandelve or whatever you'd get to the boss it would be the boss and four you know goblins or whatever and they just quickly dispatch the the mooks and then it's four five player turns the action economy versus one boss turn mm. It just, even if it's a long or difficult fight, it doesn't feel fun, at least to me, or I think to my players, because it's just a grind almost, which is, which is not fun. Whereas if the, if the single enemy can do stuff in between turns and you have to react to that, Mm -hmm. then it's much better, especially when, if it's five player turns in a row, Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit, uh, the, the weight between the first player and the fifth player where everyone's kind of just unloading their plan Mm -hmm. can be quite tedious. But if between players two and three, the boss goes and pulls a lever Mm -hmm. and, you know, you've got to react to the gas that's seeping through the wall or whatever, then it makes it a little more dynamic on other people's turns. You have to keep adjusting your plans and it just becomes a bit more active, dynamic throughout. Yeah, I I completely agree. And especially if you've got players who consistently always go first in combat or always go last in combat just because the way their initiatives are you know because some player classes they can uh, roll with advantage or they just have a ridiculously high deck so if you're someone who just always rolls low and you're like well i've got nothing to do in this fight because you know that person's probably gonna die before it gets to me especially if you've got you know five players so i i love that idea that it is constantly shifting because obviously players this is how bad i've got but i've got a combat sheet of everything i can do on it because i'm such a high level now but it is these are the main go-to moves, which will all, always seem to work. And only if like, oh, it's, it's got a high AC or, oh, something else has happened. It's like, okay, now I need to change that, you know, and, and being on my toes and stuff. And, and it, I think it just adds to that immersion and make sure that engagement is still there. Because obviously when you're playing online as well, there are lots of distractions. You might actually not be feeling it and, oh, it's not my turn yet. Okay, and you zone out just because because it happens, you know. So Yeah, I was reading uh, the old favourite RPG horror stories the other day. And oh, really? someone said, oh, you know, it got to the point where, I just had my combat macro set up, which just sounds like the worst thing in the world yeah. where oh. it's like your turn rolls around and you just click a single button and it does what you want to do on your combat turn. There's no way that a turn in combat should be capturable <laughs> into a programmed yeah, macro. You should, you just just play a video game, yeah, you, know, really. you know, like, oh yeah, oh, that's so sad. Like if you just, yeah. oh, I can't bother to, oh, that's so sad. Let's move on from that then. So, all right, what, what's next then? Well, the next section is the uh, the big numbers section, determine numbers and challenge ratings. And yes. to put it in perspective, the previous two sections, it's like 15 lines of text. The next section is one and a half pages, pretty much, where it's telling you to look at these tables, take your character levels, 
find the corresponding listing of challenge ratings. And then uh, even further, it moves over to the second page where it's okay. Now we have a list for a single character has a ratio of challenge rating. Yeah. Uh, let me just read out read, what read it, it says. Out. Yeah, because I think yeah, I, because I had to read it several times to get this right. So yeah, read it out from the top. Just I'm going to read it out, but with the caveat that this probably won't make any sense. Yes. And that's kind of the so, point. So <laughs> once Ben's read it, pause it, skip back 30 seconds, and then listen again. Yeah, and then- <laughs> maybe not even because I'm going to say it's pointless probably. <laughs> it says, if your encounter features multiple monsters, balancing it takes a little more work. Refer to the multiple monsters tables, which are broken up by level ranges, providing information for how to balance encounters for characters of 1st to 5th, 6th to 10th, and so on. Yeah, so we're reading from page 88. The tables are on page 90. First, you need to note the challenge rating for each creature the party will face. Then, to create your encounter, find the level of each character on the appropriate table. Each table shows what a single character of a given level is equivalent to in terms of challenge rating, a value represented by a ratio that compares the numbers of characters to a single monster ranked by challenge rating. Ah, like head, head and hands at this point. Like, <laughs> the who, first who did the number, copy editing of this? <laughs> the first number in each expression is the number of characters of the given level. The second number tells how many monsters of the listed challenge rating those characters are equivalent to, which is a very complicated way of expressing something that I think is visually less complicated. Yes. Where basically you say, okay, I've got, I've got a third level character. So I look at, there's a single row that says third level character and you say, okay, well, I want to, I've thought that this, this combat should have this creature in and that creature is a quarter challenge rating. So if I go to the third level character and I go across to the column noted as one quarter, mm-hmm. it has the ratio one to two, mm-hmm. which means one third level character should be equivalent to two quarter CR monsters. Yes. And then and then later on, you know, if you had a higher challenge rating, that ratio would flip. So it says, for example, if you have a challenge rating two monster, you're going to need four to one. You're going to need four third level characters to fight a single challenge rating two monster. Yeah, absolutely. Which, if you're running like an adventurous guild, this probably is a goldmine because you can actually just add lots of numbers together and you can say, well, I wanted a fight with some half CR monsters and some one CR monsters. And suddenly I've had the players come to the table and they've got a fourth level character, a third level character and two fifth levels. Oh my God, what do I do? Well, you can just kind of keep adding together these numbers to make it work. Say, okay, I'll put two of the quarter ones. That's worth one third level character so i can take that person out of the equation yeah. and now i just need to keep adding creatures to match the remaining players until mm-hmm. i've got an encounter so it's just yeah it's just that balancing asset so yeah it i would highly recommend looking at page 90 yeah it's that last two lines of what you said like the first number in that expression is referring to the player character and the second one is referring to the creature that is the more important thing and yeah when it flips that's okay because it's the number of players versus more powerful creature but but yeah, reading that paragraph over and over, I was like, <laughs> oh, like, took yeah. me back to my uni days. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no. But yeah, I, I can imagine as uh, if, if I was doing a Ventress League, having those tables printed out and put somewhere just to be like, right, 
you know, and d- doing that quick prep before, you know, everyone sits down and chats for like five minutes whilst you're just sorting things out. Like you'll have already read the scenario, but just making sure the combat encounters that you have aren't, they're not steamrolled over because suddenly you have an extra two players join or anything like that. So, yeah. So I appreciate where it's coming from, although I personally am never going to look at that again because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't plan to run Adventurer's Guild. Then it moves on to say, weirdly, select monsters, which mm. is a little confusing because the previous section told you to look up your monster's challenge rating in order to know where to look at it in the table. I but I think you were just supposed to pick a challenge rating and not a monster that corresponded. And this, as someone who home pretty much exclusively homebrews, I think this is the backwards way to do it. Absolutely. Because, because the number one thing I Google when I'm homebrewing the next thing in combat session is monsters by challenge rating. Mm. You start there because you can't be like, okay, you know, they're, they're fourth level and they're going into the mine or whatever, and there needs to be a fight. So I'll construct it following these steps. Now I pick my monsters and I go and I'm like, okay, the fight has two CR halves one CR1 in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. There's no monsters that would ever be found in a mine with mm-hmm. those challenge ratings, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, it happens often. It happens all too mm-hmm. often. So anyway, they tell you to now pick your monsters by using the values you've chosen. Think about, you know, making sure that no single monster could kill a single player in a single hit. So just check their damage values, things like that. Mm-hmm. But otherwise pick based around flavor and setting and so on, which is... I suppose, again, it's kind of reasonable when you're you're doing an adventurer's guild, but I personally would start, as I said, from either look for monsters by challenge rating and Mm. pick the ones that make flavor sense for where the players are going to have the fight and then kind of work backwards through these sections. Mm -hmm. Or what I've tended to do now is start homebrewing uh, the creatures. You could go forward in the direction the book lays it out, and then instead of picking a monster based on challenge rating, you pick a stat block based on challenge rating that you then mm-hmm. tweak to make the monsters that you want to encounter mm-hmm. in the mine. So if there's nothing that's flavorfully appropriate for a mine, but there is a you know animated tree that has the right kind of challenge rating and properties that you want, then you just stick a label over it that says it's actually a clay golem or whatever, and then you know tweak the flavor of the abilities. So they might still do the same thing. It might still have a, mm-hmm. a big slam attack, but it's not a trunk that it's doing it with. It's its fist, you know. Yeah. I think you've I think Ryan talked about that before in a previous episode, actually. <laughs> just <laughs> glasses. <laughs> just glasses. I think you'll find you probably did. In the DM's guide, when I was reading that, at the end of it, it talks of the idea of multiple waves. So that you have like the minions going first, and then maybe another group, and then the big boss coming out, which is very video game style. And they talked about how when trying to work out the CR ratings for that encounter, um, you should think about it as sort of a treat them as separate encounters. I think they said like in in that one, obviously you work out the average party XP for the day and stuff like that. And obviously if it's a third higher then the each individual wave is, if it's a third higher, then it's going to be more difficult because they've not had a chance to rest. They probably have used up all the big spells, et cetera, which I thought I quite like that because sometimes you like, if you do all this sort of thing, you're like, here's the thing, but if you only get two of them out at first and then the next round, more of them come, they could be just really lucky, the players and just have already destroyed you know, two of the things rather than having that whole idea of a, you know, that sort of image of a swarm coming and like, what do you do? How do you deal with it? So I, I don't know how it would deal with that with the encounter builder from Xanapas because it doesn't, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't really mention yeah, the idea it kind of, of it is, it's, it's kind of implying that you 
you you know you go into the once. room the exclamation mark appears over the enemy's heads the spiral comes in and you enter a fight <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's kind of implying <laughs> what happens but actually i did do a wave based or you know horde horde of enemies based fight recently mm. which i'll talk about uh, in a in a short while mm-hmm. um and yeah i think this system it probably would still work i i think my main thing to add to the Xanathar's guide when it comes to these numbers and building an encounter is I would advise against writing down the monsters and the numbers, especially in a wave encounter, and then sticking to that no matter what. Yeah. I take issue a lot with the mentality that people often have that, you know, if I've, whatever I've written down before I start the session as a DM is law and I cannot change it. Um, D&D isn't competitive in the way I play it or the way I run it. No. Understand that obviously your mileage may vary. If you have a group that's tailored a certain way, but from my where I come from, it's not competitive and it's not about your fun. It's about everyone's fun. That includes mm-hmm. the DM, mm-hmm. but especially the players as well, because your job as a DM is to make sure they're having fun in a way that doesn't ruin it for you. Mm-hmm. And so if you go through this book and you fill in all these numbers and then you come up with a horde mechanic and then by the time the third wave comes around they're all you know really on low hp or one of them is unconscious and you're about to send you check your notes oh god three more of the big monsters at them mm-hmm. you know there's nothing that says you can't just have made it one if they yeah. you know if oh, they yeah. saw the three monsters sitting waiting there you might have to do some tweaking you might have to have one of them uh suddenly you know turn tail or like stab the other in the back because they want the they want the leadership position yeah. or whatever exactly but you shouldn't just be like, well, you know, I wrote it down, so they come, and now you have to fight those as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think, I don't know if it's, maybe it's just me, but obviously it took me a long time to realise as a player, you don't have to fight everything. Not everything is winnable. You can escape, and you can definitely do that. And it's that communicating to your players that that, that is also an option. You do not have to fight this, no matter what it is. Uh, even if it's like a social encounter, you do not have to talk to this person. If you're like, actually, no, we should, we need to go back. We need to, we're, we're outnumbered, outmanned, all that sort of thing. So yeah. I find it, yeah, I, I find that sort of attitude really interesting. If you, I think as a DM, sometimes I've had that saying, there are more of them coming and use my face to go, what are you going to do? Like saying like, there's more coming. Yeah. And yeah, I, I've more than done that when I've changed, like, okay, there's not three, it's one or all that sort of thing. Absolutely. Because it's, it's no fun, like, you know, killing your players or like a TPK. Well, it has happened, you know, through various bad luck roles and all that sort of thing. But I've tried to make it sure that it's never because I've stuck to my plan that, well, this was always going to happen. You, you know, you had no chance because that's not fair. Especially like, as you said, I think D&D and RPGs, they are collaborative storytelling experiences. They're improv, essentially. And these are just rules to help you create what you know the perfect story or that not even the perfect story but a interesting story and if your story is like actually it's more fun with more players in it you can easily deviate from it you, uh, yeah it's it's an interesting you know yeah, yeah I, very old-fashioned way of thinking about things but i entirely agree and i think actually if i were to go back and look at all of the encounters i've run in the last two years the majority don't end in the enemies all being dead mm. maybe they've killed a couple but managed to you know convince them to start fighting because they're clearly losing or knock them unconscious mm-hmm. or it was never a fight to the death it was uh, a fight to prove themselves or you know to usurp someone or whatever it is mm-hmm. i i think just 
killing everybody in the room is um, a, a little narrow-minded. <laughs> yeah, well, it does. It does a disturb. Like we recently interviewed uh, Keith Amman, uh, who writes the uh, the nuances know what they're doing, and actually, that obviously that's more of an analyzing like each stat block and all that sort of thing. But with that, plus at the end of this uh, chapter in the in Zanifar, I was talking about monster relationships and personality, actually making them more than just cut out cardboard versions of it's a goblin you know like there's this i guess there's you know again depending on how you do your dm stuff but actually giving them personality and flavor like oh that one's greedy it's going to backstab the other one because then in my head as a player it's like there's a whole world i don't know about and i've just seen a small glimpse of us that other person and what they're doing and stuff and yeah it takes maybe a little bit more work and maybe writing a few more notes and maybe describing the creatures a little bit more but yeah i think yeah. that is quite possibly the best part of this anathas guide is the add flavor section which mm-hmm. is what i want to lead into what yes. my uh, encounters through yes. but the ad flavor section it's split up into monster personality monster relationships terrain and traps and random events which i think are all great things to consider mm-hmm. as a dm and the monster personality and monster relationship section actually lend themselves really well towards not just murdering everyone to yes. quote unquote win the combat i mean just looking at the monster personality section they're pretty much all flaws i'll say there's cowardly Absolutely. looking to surrender greedy wants treasure Braggart makes a show of bravery but runs from danger. I love that. I love that one. <laughs> Fanatic ready to die fighting. Mm-hmm. Rabble poorly trained and easily rattled. <laughs> Brave stands its ground. Joker taunts its enemies and bully refuses to believe it can lose. More than half of those are things that'll get them killed or make them run away. You mm-hmm. know, they'll favor the treasure over the fight. So if they can get their hands on the shiny goblet and run, they'll do it. They do it. Uh, they're cowardly. They'll just they'll surrender as soon as their first friend dies you know i I think that is really wonderful and i think the flavor it adds is excellent especially in the monster relationships which has things like has a rival wants one random ally to suffer (laughs) that's fantastic i just love the idea of as soon as you see the chance to you know your rival has taken half hit points you can you know use your sneak attack to finish them off and take the role love it it's brilliant it's like there can be only one and it is me yeah yeah, it's 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 excellent and then they have the inverse you know is worshipped allies will die for it that's great too push them out of the way of the aoe and take it yourself that kind of thing ah really good and then there's terrain and traps which is great for thinking about the environment Mm -hmm. i think they could have done uh, i'm not sure how easy it is to put this kind of thing into a book um but Mm -hmm. what i'm going to talk about when i talk about the encounters i've run recently is Mm -hmm. how to use terrain and traps and random events to actually make it fun like I, i think they they kind of do a good job of saying it'll make it interesting and add to the flavor yeah what potential perils or other features might draw the character's attention either before or during the fight that's in the mm-hmm. terrain of traps under random events it says to consider what might happen in an encounter area if the characters were never to enter it and mm-hmm. um, to the guard seven shifts which i think it means is saying will some guards randomly join in the middle of the fight mm-hmm the creatures gather there to eat or gossip that'll help you add to the flavor of the area (laughs) but i think what neither section does and i think it's kind of interesting i feel like wizards of the coast don't often do it is to kind of talk about the emotional goals of Mm -hmm. these mechanics they often are very uh kind of mechanical and clinical about explaining numbers and 
a formula for building an encounter, but you can use a formula to build an encounter and end up with, you know, the correct number of monsters of the correct challenge rating. And you're on a map and there's a trap over there. And halfway through the battle, it starts raining, but it doesn't, <laughs> it, it, it might still not resonate with the players. It might not actually no. be cohesive, immersive or fun. Mm. Just having these things innately is not necessarily fun. So I think, I don't know if they should, I don't know how you can or whether it's just too difficult to nail down because it's so much depends on your personality and your player's personality. But personally, when I think about terrain and traps and random events and all these other things, I'm thinking in the middle of the fight, what trap or terrain is going to be flavorful and interesting and fun mm-hmm. and require the players to react in a way they're going to enjoy as opposed to just arbitrary, which I think mm-hmm. this can sometimes lend itself to. Yeah, absolutely. I think it gets to a point where you're just hitting mooks for points and you're just whittling them down. As flat. So many times you, you hear, well, because people don't necessarily build characters that are maxed for combat you know they're they're suboptimal because i want to play this kind of character because that's what you know that's the story i've built and we all know that dnd is a war game so suddenly in combat they're like anything i do is not gonna hit as hard or it's not gonna it's not going to work so combat for some people when you create these characters doesn't seem to work so that's why you hear people go what else is there in the surroundings what else can i use can i use the environment to help me you know is there a barrel i can loose that will sort of crash onto some guards to get out of the way or block the passageway and that sort of thing and i i've been doing that a lot more where i can even though i i definitely have built my character for combat but i'm trying to be aware about what else is there in you know the environments yeah. and stuff you know and, and being i'm more than happy to go and try these things out but it, i think that's just through years of just going there must be something else i can do here that's not just constantly chipping away at someone's hp stack essentially yeah. but i yeah i think it's tricky though i guess that's just from experience because there's not as you said there's nothing directly in the text that says think about how you do this maybe there is in like certainly in wild beyond the witch like there is a if stuff for new DMs to know is like what to say to the players, like, oh, you know, don't say the hit points of the creature, just say, oh, it looks, it, start, it took that hit really hard, you know, and being able to describe that sort of thing, but not necessarily about the environment and like in the combat and making it come alive. So I wanted to talk about rather um, self interestedly uh, what? a couple, <laughs> me? I am no. shocked. <laughs> I am great. Yes. <laughs> Just, I wanted to talk about a couple of encounters I built recently. Yes, which, please. Uh, you know, I actually, I built them before reading the Xanathar's Guide section. But actually, especially the Add Flavor section resonated a lot with how I built them. And I mm-hmm. probably would tweak the encounters if I were to build them now based on things like the monster personality and relationships. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really great section that I would definitely add. Mm-hmm. But... When I've been building encounters recently, Mm -hmm. it's been from, as I said, this source of it's about combining flavor with something that's interesting and fun for the players. Mm -hmm. And if you I kind of I kind of think you have to have all of that for it to be worth doing. Mm -hmm. I don't as a player or DM really want to partake in it if it if it's not flavorful, if it's Mm -hmm. just mechanical, I'll go play a video game. Mm -hmm. And if it's only uh, flavor and there's no mechanics, well, I'll read a book. The whole point is that it all synergizes together, that you're having a flavorful setting. It's interesting in that you have to consider what's happening, interact, react, work with your allies, Mm -hmm. and then it has to have the kind of mechanical presence because 
why did I read the rule book if it's not going to matter? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, So the main thing that I've tweaked recently has been I've tried to focus on adding one thing to the environment and one thing to the monster or monsters that targets all three of those areas, flavor, reactivity, and mechanic, so that the players kind of that they're almost certainly going to get all of it because in, in the environment and the monster, there's like one thing I've added that'll mm-hmm. that'll target all those areas. So the first encounter, I did send you this beforehand. I don't know if you read it. it so I'll, yes, I'll, please. Um, so I'll I'll set it up for the for the sake of the listeners at home. Please do. Um, this was for a one shot, and the setting of the one shot. There's a certain video game that I actually won't mention by name because mentioning it by name will spoil the video game in the terms of the encounter. But once I describe the encounter, you'll know exactly what game I'm talking about if you've played it. Um, Amazing. (laughs) The the, the players were, for the sake of the one shot, on a ship traveling to a far-flung destination. They could see the coast. They were sailing along the side of um, but it's, you know, perfect one-shot setting. You can't leave. You're on a ship. Yeah. Uh, you're never going to jump over the side and swim to shore or go to the pub. You're just, you're, you're where you need to be. Yeah. But early on, they uh, they have to fish for some food and they drag up a huge uh, octopus tentacle. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes down to the chef to cook up for dinner. But then in the distance, they see someone stranded on a, on a bit of flotsam who they rescue missing an arm uh you can probably put two and two together what by this point that the chef then discovers that the octopus arm has an actual humanoid arm inside of it mm. and that's when the fight starts because they the ship gets plunged into a, an, an eerie storm and comes out on the other side and uh, the combat is a, a half kraken half ship kind of rises up through the water and surfaces next to them and the the tentacles kind of flop on and latch onto their ship Mm. and this is the horde fight that i said earlier they start being boarded by a bunch of you know monstrosities kind of davy jones in pirates of the caribbean you know like they're kind of half human they've got tentacle arms or crab arms and yeah all kinds of flavor you can work in there so that's the setting Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. That's happening that's to that. you right now. Yeah, just you know, that's two hours of gameplay, basically. <laughs> or, or, or rather, it's planned for two hours, but it's actually been four. And Jeff has to go home at ten, but we really want to get the combat done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or oh, classic, classic. This is like classic realistic Jeff. versus ideal. Yeah. I actually ran this in one evening. It was wow. rushed at the end, but it did yes. get done in one evening. How funny! Um, but so that's the you know that's that was the idea I had in my head. That was where I started writing. Was you've got I really like this idea of a half tentacle ship thing that boards you by like latching on with its tentacles. Mm-hmm. So then I started with that, and I thought, okay, how can I mechanically add something to the environment of this combat that's gonna do all those things, fun, interactive, reactive, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went straight to this ship with its monster tentacles and I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity to use legendary actions, even though the players are only level five. five yeah. mm. Like, I don't think I, I'm off the top of my head. I don't think I've seen a monster that has legendary actions. That's only at, no, for a level five encounter. Not, not at all. No. But what you can do is, they're kind of like layer actions. They're kind of like legendary actions. Mm. I don't think they're quite either, but just put something into the encounter that says at the DM's discretion, once or twice around, they can trigger one of these effects that will let you 
move the players around or give them something that they have to react to so that if they've killed a bunch of mooks and there's five players and player number five is waiting through four other players' turns, they're not able to just look at their phone and then their turn comes around and they say guiding bolt and then they roll and they're done. <laughs> Instead, they have to watch and, uh, and see what the other players are doing because you can use one of these actions. So mm. what the ship could do, the ship with its legendary actions could... Uh, slam a giant tentacle down, which would be like a 10 foot wide bludgeoning beam. So the players would, you know, want to dive out of the way. And Mm -hmm. uh, that would force that you would, I was using a grid based map, right? So you'd actually move the characters and kind of split up groups and make it harder Mm -hmm. to flank. And the ship could also uh, tilt the ship the players were on, forcing them to make a deck save or be moved again across the map, like slide towards one edge and maybe fall off. Maybe an NPC falls off and you have to react to trying to save them. Do you throw over a rope? Do you dive over? Do you use a spell slot? Do you let them go? Because it's a one shot and you don't really mind. You You don't care. They'll be fine. (laughs) So that that was the main environment change I did, which I mean, I think it went well. You can ask uh, the players, Dr. Mm-hmm. Big Dick and Dr. Big Dick, as he says. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask them, but I thought it, I thought it went really well. Um, yeah. And actually the flavor ended in the end of the fight with one character jumping on the tentacle that had slammed onto the ship and riding it back onto the, onto the Kraken cool. ship uh, to kill the boss. So that was, I think it did its job. You know, they had to react. They could react. There were meaningful things that they can do to react to these effects Mm -hmm. and they're flavorful and and mechanically sound as well. You know, it's not arbitrary. You have a 10 foot wide beam attack of bludgeoning damage. You have a deck save that moves you 10 feet in a direction. It's not just arbitrary. So once you've seen it once you can plan accordingly, stay away from the edge of the ship yeah. kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love that. Yeah. I, that whole imagery as well, the ship tilting and, and, you know, taking out of turn and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess, yeah, for me, it's like, yeah, legendary actions, it, it, cause it's a ship, it is environment. And that, yeah, it's, it's so key, I think, cause then it can just happen. So yeah, it is a mixture of, like you said, like layer action plus uh, legendary actions and just as and when. So yeah, I really like those. Yeah. And that ability of just like, well, you're not where you were, two turns ago uh two turns ago in the in the initiative what do you do now because you might have a plan to like you said like to save somebody but then the tentacles come across and you're like well that's your path cut it's going to take you to get over there so that might be a check and that might mean you lose your action and stuff like that so yeah really like that I think that's yeah really, really maybe that maybe the term is like narrative actions or something hmm. i feel like it's 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 not that they're necessarily coming from a source or a particular monster or or anything. It's just that these are tools in your toolkit as a DM mm-hmm. to tweak the combat as it's happening to make it interesting. Yeah, and and like you said, like it having the charges, so it can't every at the end of every other, every person's turn, the ship tilts back and forth. It's not going to be like that. It's like up to your discretion, but also using like once you've used your legendary in quotation mark actions, comes back to you, you gain them back, and people will know that. But I guess because obviously, unless you said it otherwise in the document you sent me, there's no the ship doesn't have any legendary resistances, which is obviously that's another hallmark of legendary monsters is that they're saving throw. I've already succeeded it, which is always really irritating when you just blast out those, uh, as a player, your high level spells, but that's something that is also saving. So again, when you're, I guess, a big bad of a lower level per se, or, or even as a ship or something like that, not having those, but having the actions is more valuable and more immersive. Cause I guess with that resistance, it's just like, Oh, your action you're trying to do to me. I've taken that away from you now. And it's like, Oh, well that's my turn wasted. <laughs> so 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get why they keep adding mechanics like that where it just takes away from what the players can do. Yeah, miss a turn. And, yeah. Any yeah, anytime you do something and there's you know, everyone everyone loves casting counterspell, but no one likes having counterspell cast on them. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> Not it, at and, all. and so <laughs> so if you're a DM and you're making encounters where everyone's getting the equivalent of counterspell for whatever their ability is, whether that's through a legendary resistance or just like you're immune to a particular type of damage or something, mm-hmm. it's not as fun. I, I feel like it's much better to give players things that if they figure them out, will let them be better than it is to, and that's how you make the encounter harder is, is everything's generally harder, yeah. but not impossible unless they find a good solution, something unique, clever, or that takes everything into account. Yeah, you probably use a rule of cool for that. I wish they put rule of cool in big capital letters at the top of every page. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, hey, 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 be cool. It's it's a cool idea. Yeah, It's just about having fun. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything else you wanted to say about your your one shot before we bring this episode to an end? Because it, yeah. I would say it's an absolutely fabulous one shot, and I I'm, this is me saying it to you now. You need to write this up and put it on DM's Guild because I think it's really interesting oh, and having yes. that. No, but I think so. Like it's you've got you've got names for the crew. That's more than I ever do when I'm running games. Like, oh, you need a name, Floris. You know, like something. Yeah, I've started now. I'll I'll usually give like one or two specific names to particular characters but then i'll just go on one of these there's a hundred websites so it's like name generator yeah i've started now going to like the ones for like specific books like often there's like for brandon sanderson books it's like this is a name generator for people from this world setting and this town mm-hmm. gives it a kind of consistency when you click generate mm-hmm. but then i'll just at the bottom of a one-shot page i'll just like copy all those names no so that's, that that's very names. smart and you've also got like a, a mini fishing game which i love as well oh, and, yeah. that, yeah. and so stuff like that so anyway but it's a what would be your final send-off i guess final send-off yeah i, I guess rule of cool uh overrides everything it's i've dm'd a lot of games and i've played in a fair number as well where the combat just devolves into it might as well be a blank arena just Mm -hmm. an empty space where everyone gathers up and starts punching each other just see how the (laughs) dice roll out and everyone knows what their best single target spell is and their best aoe spell is and the only kind of interesting things that happen are like can i cast my 20 foot radius spell and get that guy mm-hmm. and then you get out a measuring thing and you're like no and you're like great and you move on mm-hmm. it, it, it it's i've been playing a lot of final fantasy online as you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i think that game when they designed it they suffered from that pretty early on and then over the years they have done a lot more things like this which force the party to be moving around, reacting when it's not your kind of turn, Mm -hmm. to constantly be paying attention and having to respond to what's going on in a flavorful and interesting way, Mm -hmm. um, rather than just being able to look at your phone and wait for your turn and cast your powerful spell. Mm -hmm. It pays dividends outside of combat. The more engaged your players are consistently, then the better it is for everyone. So if combat just becomes 80% waiting around, then you're already going to be kind of distracted when the combat's over and it's time to talk about something else. Absolutely agree. Ben, we've come to the end of this episode, but I I feel so more informative. I actually feel excited for creating encounters now. So that was the thing, because I just thought it was a lot of numbers and stuff. But actually, yeah, as you say, I think 
thinking about the environment and the flavor stuff first about like what do i want the players to get out of this that's the more important thing and then building it from there so absolutely and i would say actually the only other thing i would say is that in the dm's guide they talk about having a mission in each encounter so like rescue somebody retrieve an object all that sort of thing so if you needed any help with that in the sense of like what can this encounter be you know it's instead of just like hit the other person another person it could be literally stopping two teams of people fighting each other you know and and go from that as well so that i found was interesting as well again in terms of flavor stuff but we have come to the end so ben is there anything you'd like to plug anything you're up to i don't have a big online presence actually maybe maybe by the time this comes out you need to search my name up on dm's guild and i'll find you <laughs> up there. but otherwise i every month or so finally get around to streaming on twitch possibly with my partner who is actually how i know v originally basically uh, so that's twitch.tv slash the pickle farm um otherwise don't fly as many flights in planes drive instead Absolutely. And <laughs> I am uh, Fiona. I run the What Am I Rolling podcast, which is a twice monthly RPG one shot podcast. As always, it's going very, very well. I'm doing stuff offline just now, lots of uh, uh, improv shows in person, which is lovely. But at the same time, it's like, oh, stay away from me. But uh, please do come to those. They're at Hoopla, uh, The Miller, which is with Hoopla in London Bridge. There you go. All those words jumbled together now make sense. We've also got a few other bits coming up. We're doing a, a one-shot, sorry, on Vert, which is a bit like uh, train spotting, but sci-fi, which I'm very excited for that to come out because that'd be good. And I'm doing lots of other stuff, which is under NDA, which is very exciting. Ooh, very uh, mysterious. I, yes, it's it's me. I have stuff, but it's it's basically what the D&D future panel was. It's like, there's stuff coming, but I'm teasing you about it because we're under various contracts not to say. <laughs> so. You know how to keep us hooked. I do, I do. So thank you so much for listening, folks. And I'm sure there'll be another episode in the next track, which you can listen to there. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye.